think probably as a doctor, I thought uh, the law was more clear cut, more mm. black and white. What I've learned from the case is it's not written in tablets of stone. Taryn Stevenson is a consultant paediatrician who became chair of the General Medical Council in 2015. It's safe to say that during his four-year tender, the General Medical Council hasn't had the easiest of times. Hadiza Bawagaba was criminalised for making mistakes and led to the profession being up in arms. We're also facing Brexit and an NHS recruitment crisis. The GMC might need to rethink its role as a gatekeeper for doctors from overseas wishing to work in the NHS. I'm Abby Rimmer, a reporter and editor for the BMJ, and I went to Terence's offices to talk to him about his career at the GMC and his perspective on how the, how the organisation has responded to some of these challenges. Firstly, we talked about Hadiza Bawagaba and the response of doctors to the GMC's decision to pursue her erasure from the medical register despite this not being recommended by the Medical Practitioners Tribunal. And the first thing I wonder is whether you feel like the GMC as an organisation has been damaged by that case, and if so, how can it recover? Mm. It's definitely lost the confidence of the profession, mm. and for that I'm, I, I'm sorry that it's had that effect, because that wouldn't have been, clearly wasn't our desire to lose the confidence of the profession. Um, it was a very difficult, complex case, not least highlighted by the fact that even very eminent uh, legal people, lawyers, QCs and judges, couldn't agree on it. And the initial uh, decision of the High Court was then overturned by the Appeal Court. That just shows what a complex case it was. Um, what are we doing to restore that confidence? Well, I think what we've said is that actions will speak louder than words. And I can run through some of those actions for you. We've, we've bundled them under a title called Supporting a Profession Under Pressure because all of our data does suggest that the certainly the doctors in the NHS across all four countries, including myself, I practice in the NHS, are, are working under huge pressure. So what have we done to support them? We've um, commissioned Denise Coyer and Michael West to undertake a piece of work looking at the well-being of doctors. And indeed, not just documenting whether they're more unhappy or more anxious or have more mental health problems, but indeed, what could we do or what could one do to help them? And in fact, that was a piece of work already in our minds even before this case, because I'd had discussions with uh, Sir Simon Wesley when he was president of the College of Psychiatrists about the very con the concern that, that uh, doctors were were feeling under great strain. That's one example. Um, secondly, uh, we have commissioned Roger Klein and Doyen Atawalugan to do a piece of work looking at why so many BME doctors get referred to us. Not that we seek them out, mm. but there's certainly an excess of doctors referred to us, so we're doing that piece of work. Uh, we um, have a Welcome to UK Practice Programme, which isn't really our remit. It should, it's kind of induction should really be done by employers when doctors come from other countries. But we have set that up free of charge. If you are trained in another culture and English isn't your first language, and you turn up on a Friday night in an A&E and NHS, you are likely to get in, far more likely to have problems than someone like me who's practiced here all my life. And finally, we've issued guidance on, on uh, 
on reflective practice, which I think mm. we've done that with the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges and the Medical Schools Council. And I think, I hope that's been reassuring to you. Do you think though there's still a misunderstanding that exists within doctors about reflective practice? <clears throat> I hear lots of different yeah. views from people who clearly still don't understand. Yeah. So I think, I think uh, all doctors, like all professionals, we need to be reflective, otherwise we don't learn from things. I have to reflect on, on my practice every week. I think the misunderstanding is that it's, there's several One is that the GMC would want to use people's reflective notes. We, we've said we never have and never would. Um, a second is that somehow you could um, jeopardize yourself in a criminal case or a civil case by, by they are asking for your reflective notes. I'm not a lawyer, but what the lawyers tell us is they wouldn't be interested because it's what they call hearsay. It's not a, they're interested in the contemporaneous medical records and what doctors and nurses and the team said and wrote at the time. They're not really interested in what people reflected on afterwards because that's not, that's what they tell us. We did ask this, the review by Sir Norman Williams to, to privilege reflective notes just to reassure doctors, but the government didn't take that advice. I know that the Claire Marks review is still ongoing. Yeah, it's no longer the Claire Marks review oh. because she's want to be my successor oh, so it being a, because it was an independent review that that we commissioned very soon after the appeal case we couldn't do anything while the appeal case was live mm. as soon as that res resolved uh, the matter and was, the legal advice was clear we of course recognized that that the profession had had really struggled with this idea that a doctor's mistakes in one day could leave them being prosecuted in the criminal court and given a jail sentence. So we commissioned an independent review, which Claire Marks was asked to chair. Then when she was appointed as my successor, she stepped away from that, and it's now being chaired by Leslie Hamilton, who's a, a cardiac surgeon from Newcastle and a coroner, part-time coroner. And that will report sometime next year. And what we hope, it is an independent review. I have absolutely no input into it. But one of the things that really perplexed us in the Jack Adcock, Dr. Barwick Garber case was that there have been something like, I don't know, something like a, a dozen prosecutions in England over the last 15 years. There's not been a single one in Scotland that the equivalent charge would be culpable homicide. There's not been a single prosecution in Scotland at all. Not, not even been prosecuted but unsuccessful. Mm. Uh, find not guilty they just be, they just haven't prosecuted and that suggests to us some inconsistency and we're worried that even within England uh, the crime prosecution service might prosecute someone in Kent but wouldn't in Hampshire and that, that doesn't feel right so mm. that's one of the things in the terms of reference that I hope the the review will comment on but with hindsight looking back is there anything you think the GMC could have done differently or explained differently to the profession at the time? Yeah, I think probably as a doctor, I thought uh, the law was more clear-cut, more mm. black and white. What I've learned from the case is it's not written in tablets of stone and you kind of one QC give one advice, another QC give the opposite advice. You can have two high court judges 
agree on one thing and three appeal court judges unanimously disagree with the two high court judges. So one of the things I've learned is, is uh, how complex the law is. I think second thing I've learned is um, that I, I'm a pediatrician and I think had I not been a pediatrician, I, I, I wouldn't have been so... I think I became very emotionally involved in the case. I felt, uh, because professionally I've looked after children, sick children all my life, children with Down syndrome, children in shock, um, children with infections. Um, I think I got too involved in the clinical details of the case, which actually were nothing to do with me or the GMC. These were events which happened in 2011 leading to a criminal conviction in 2015. So long before I was involved in the GMC. Mm. And I think it would have been wiser just to say, well, the case is the case. The courts have concluded what they've concluded. Our role now is to decide what to do with the doctor who's got a serious criminal conviction. And I think we've also learned from that, and the courts have clarified that the threshold is higher. And it took the appeal court case to clarify that Essentially what it said is a criminal court decides whether you've committed a criminal act, but it's the tribunal that decides whether you're able to work or not. Mm. And I think that's it's a shame that had to the case had to happen to clarify that, but I think everyone feels clearer about that now. Mm. So that's certainly some of my 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 personal um learning from that. And I made some prove I made some uh, reflective notes. And I, of course, I've learned something that I knew from my first gross negligence manslaughter case I was involved in was uh, in my hospital in 2001, a case involving a, a young man called Wayne Jowett. And I learned then, as I've relearned now, that prosecuting doctors um, almost inevitably leads to more defensive practice mm. by other doctors. And that's not a new... And that's, the PMJ have run articles on that going back... Mm probably 2015 years, um, an editorial saying it, it doesn't actually improve patient safety because it makes all doctors practice in a different way. And I think I, I would recognise that. And you say that now that there's been a, a sort of clarification around the role of the court and the yeah. role of the tribunal. So if there was a if there was a future case of a doctor yeah. who was convicted in a criminal law, gross negligence mm. manslaughter, would the GMC now stick with the... Um, medical practitioners tribunal decision uh, absolutely but well, I can't comment on each case is different. but undoubtedly it, this has clarified for the GMC going forward that the threshold has changed okay. and if the circumstances um, were identical um, uh, the GMC would follow the advice of the appeal court indeed that's been quoted Recently, for example, in relation to a case involving solicitors with the Solicitors Regulatory Authority, this case has clarified the law more generally mm. about the relative roles of a criminal court and a professional tribunal, whether it's for doctors or lawyers or dentists or anyone. It has mm. changed the interpretation of the law, and we would, of course, go along with that. Okay, so just so I'm clear, so the threshold has changed. So despite there being a criminal conviction... The tribune, it's the tribunal's role to decide whether or not that person is allowed Indeed. to work within that profession. Indeed. Okay. Indeed. And that's, my, I'm not a lawyer, but my, no. my understanding is that the appeal, co appeal court have made it very clear that the tribunal are the body best position. So in 
in the case of Dr. Bawagaba, the judge in the criminal court said something in his summing up, like your career is clearly now over. Mm -hmm. The appeal courts made absolutely clear that it's not it's not for the judge in the criminal court to say that. They might have a personal view. Mm. It's for the tribunal, um, aware of all the facts, aware of the conviction, aware of the doctor's um, perhaps mitigation, aware of the system failings, aware of the doctor's remorse and remediation and what they've done since. Take the whole picture together and make a decision about is this person, should this person be practicing? Mm. And the GMC would completely go along with that. One of the things I did want to ask you is I, I spoke to. Andrew Goddard a while ago and yeah. he said he thought the GMC should apologise for yeah. the profession. And I wonder whether, if you think it would be appropriate, I know you said you're sorry for yeah. that, but if you think it would be appropriate for the GMC to apologise or whether actually you were an organisation doing the job that it was set up to do and if there's a balance yeah. there in those two things. Abby, I think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. Both, both things are true. Uh, we are an organisation that is set up to do certain things, which is sometimes unpopular. Um, we did those in good faith and on external uh, expert legal advice. But we've also apologised, and I've apologised again today. We've apologised for the impact it's had on the profession, of course. And nobody would have wished, I certainly wouldn't have wished in my time as chair, to have had these consequences. Mm. Here Terence is referring to a metaphor that Andrew Goddard, president of the Royal College of Physicians, used in an interview that I did with him about the GMC losing the dressing room, as it were, in Spork's terminology, by losing the goodwill of the medical profession. I think the metaphor used of losing the dressing room is, is, is mistaken because we're the referee, not the manager. And we've got two dressing rooms. We've got the doctors on the one hand and patients and the public on the other. And we have to try and navigate a line between those. And sometimes we take decisions that are deeply unpopular with the public and patients. The GP in South Wales, who was not sanctioned, who declined to see the little boy with asthma, who died. That was really unpopular with the public. Um, and on the other hand, we take decisions that are unpopular with doctors. So. What we're trying to do is, is, is be a referee, try and be firm, but we're not trying to keep... And we wouldn't go back to that because if you remember Dame Janet Smith at the time of shipment accused the GMC of being a body of doctors looking after doctors. That's mm -hmm. why all of the changes were introduced in 2004 uh, and since. And I, I don't think it... I don't think... I don't think the majority of the profession want to go back to a time with it where... Its, its regulator would be viewed as somebody who, um, in that sense, was biased in favour of doctors. We recorded this interview in December when the issue of Brexit was very live. Currently, the GMC makes it quite difficult for doctors from outside of the European Union to come and work in the UK. Post-Brexit, it might need to rethink these practices. We are a creature of statute. That means how we conduct our business, we, we have relatively little freedom and latitude over. Now, the 1983 Act was passed at a time when there was no internet, no email, no mobile phones. It's hard for people to, it's, it's an act passed 35 years ago to deal with a different world. Mm. A world where there were 300 complaints a year about doctors, not 10,000. A world where there were a much smaller number of medical schools around Europe. So. So one of the consequences of that is you're quite right that the way we have to tackle 
applications from doctors who are outside the EU. We don't think it's fit for purpose in, in 2018, and we've repeatedly said that to governments of all persuasions over the last decade. But we can't change that unless they amend our 1983 medical act. It's not in our gift. So when um, when we've talked to ministers around all four countries about this, we've, what we've shown them is um, a pile of pages about this high, it's about between 1,000 and 1,500 pages of hard copy, that if I was a, uh, so I'm a consultant paediatrician, if I was a consultant paediatrician in Australia or India or Nigeria, I've been working for 35 years, highly trained, I'd have to furnish 1,000 to 1,500 pages, some of which would go back. It would be very hard for me to find it. It's almost, I parody it, but it's almost like going back to get your um, milk monitor certificate from primary school. It's, it's going back 35 years in my case to my time at university. And so doctors from those countries really struggle. Some are successful, but it's an onerous task and it's a great deterrent. Mm -hmm. So we think we could help any, if there is a work increasing workforce problem post-Brexit, and fewer European doctors want to come here, we think we could absolutely help in recruiting doctors from other countries around the world, but we need government's help to reform this outdated legislation. And just to be clear, I sounds stupid, but no, you, would, you, would, you would help by reducing kind of the... the yeah, the bureaucracy, the, 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 outdated, the 1983 style bureaucracy that... Mm -hmm. um, it just seems to us madness that if you're an experienced radiologist working in New Zealand and you'd like to come and work for NHS in the UK, that we don't have more sophisticated, streamlined systems. Of... And to your, you know, it fits also nicely with the LME case. Um, I wouldn't want this to be interpreted as some dumbing down or we're going to let people in. Just the world has moved. We could, we could prove that that was an experienced radiologist in New Zealand in other ways that would actually maybe even be more reliable than relying on a thousand pages of, of, of printout. And the other two things we could do, which one of which we're already doing, so the good news for UK is that doctors around the world seem to have clocked that there might be more opportunities if there's fewer European doctors. So the number of applications to set the PLAB exam, which is the exam that non-EU doctors have to take to has doubled, and we're doubling the capacity of our PLAB assessment centre to cope with that. And the other thing we're doing is we run a thing called Welcome to UK Practice, which mm. I mentioned earlier, but it's not um, its not part of our remit, but that, that's to, again, encourage doctors who might be put off by, well, English is my second language, and I've trained in India, will I be able to make the bridge to work in an A&E department? Mm. So that, that's, um, uh, fourthly, we think, and we have been since the industrial action, been trying to encourage governments and royal colleges to look at more flexible ways of training doctors, recognizing their desire for a work-life balance, recognizing the relative feminization of the profession, that mm. we perhaps need to change the way we train doctors. And finally, there might be scope for group of people called medical associate professionals, MEPs, which is physician assistants, anesthetists, assistants, surgeons. Assistants. Now, the government have committed that they will be regulated, and I think there is scope for them helping with the workforce problem, and anything we could do to help that, we would do. 
finally, as Terence's tenure came to an end in January, we talked to him about what's next. It's been an incredible experience and really rewarding being chair of the GMC. I'm not just saying that. The proof of that is that when the advert went out for my successor, I said in truth that if, if I could, I would serve another four years. The reason I can't is it's a Privy Council rule. It's not that I didn't want to. Um, despite the challenges and events, I've, I've, I've learned a huge amount and it's been a huge job across all four countries in the UK and I, I've, I've learned an immense amount from it. So as a consequence of that, I still believe I've got a lot to offer to medicine and health services across the UK. Um, that's what I was knighted for in the New Year's Honours list this year, for my services to uh, children's healthcare and medicine more widely in the UK. I think I've still got a lot to offer. And uh, if I'm asked to do something, I'd look forward to, to another role and another challenge. Um, notwithstanding that, I have continued to practice as a doctor uh, all through my time at the, as chair at the GMC. And I've revalidated twice and I plan to go on practicing in the future. And I'm uh, looking forward to that too. I've never stopped being a doctor. So you've always practiced? Continuously since 1983, yeah. And I've been seeing emergencies and inpatients and outpatients. Um, and that helps me understand the health service that's under pressure. It helps me understand the problems faced by my colleagues in primary care and secondary care. It helps me understand the difficulties trainees find with, with rotor gaps and, and uncertainty in their life. So um, it's, it's been good to continue to be put up. But I would like to do something else. Mm. Are you going to, though, take a... Because it sounds like it must be quite hard to juggle the two roles. I would just imagine you maybe needed to go, oh, right, and then think about, or you kind of raring to go. Um, no, I have turned down two things already. I, I am raring to go, but I want to rare to go at the right thing. Mm. So uh, some advice I was given is when you come to the end of something, don't jump the first thing you're offered. It's easy to be flattered, and I think I'd rather pause and and when the right thing comes along i would like to do something more and i would be excited about that and i wouldn't be deterred at all very much enjoyed what i've done at the gmc despite some difficult times you've been listening to terence stevenson pediatrician and former chair of the general medical council talking about his time working with the regulator that's it for this podcast but we'll be back soon with more education get those CPD brownie points on the train. If you've enjoyed this, do rate or review us. It lets us know if you want more of these kinds of interviews. It also keeps us up at the top of the medical podcast charts and helps other people find us too. I'm Abby Rimmer. Thank you so much for listening.